We turn to the book of Exodus, to chapter 11. As we conclude our treatment here of the plagues, we'll read from Exodus 11 and then Exodus 12. We read Exodus 11, beginning at verse 4, and we just read the verses 4 through 8. We hear God's inspired word. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord hath put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. Now we take up verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, he shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and he shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses, 
For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened, and all your habitation shall ye eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye be come into the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Rise up, and get you forth from among my people both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people, that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up, in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. 
And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were beside women, men, that were men beside children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. We'll read that far. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We take as our text verses 29 through 36, which we will not reread, but the last few verses there that we read pertaining to the actual wonder that God performed. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have here the final culmination of all the other plagues. God was using all of the other wonders to lead to this great and glorious wonder by which he would bring judgment on Egypt. And God would sharply distinguish the Israelites from the Egyptians. God would do that by calling his son out of Egypt. We find that language already in Exodus 4 verses 22 and 23. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. God already there making reference to the fact that he was the father of his people, the Israelites. Repeated in Hosea 11 verse 1, When Israel was a child, Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Later we read in Matthew 2, verse 15, that Jesus is in Egypt until the death of Herod in order that the prophecy of Hosea, those words, might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now God uses the word firstborn here as it refers to Israel to refer to the remnant according to the election of grace. They were the firstborn because Christ was in them. And Christ was the one who had bought them and purchased them to himself. These people, chosen by God from eternity, found in Jesus Christ, must be called out of Egypt and separated from the Egypt that stands under the wrath of God. And that wondrous event here is taking place. Now we understand this is a wonder from the hand of God. Again, some have tried to explain this plague as they have the others as just some kind of a natural event, something that somehow was a pestilence that somehow smote Egypt. But that would be extremely strange, and it would be difficult for us to make any sense of that, especially in the fact that singled out were the firstborn sons. The angel of death accomplished this wonder, and God tells us that. In Psalm 78, portions of which we're going to quote in more detail, we read in verse 49 that evil angels were sent by God. God sent his evil angel to accomplish that wonder. God accomplishes this separation. Now, with regard to the firstborn, just to be able to bring that up also in the introduction, there sometimes is a dispute over whether or not it was the firstborn or the firstborn son. It's important to note that every reference that we found in the passage that we read to firstborn literally is firstborn son. And that's where we get the idea then that the focus was on 
the firstborn son. And that became the object then of the angel of death. God accomplishes a wonderful separation then. His church, his elect, born into this world, are separated from sin and death and are brought into the fullness of the wonder of redemption. And that occurs through the blood of the Lamb. We look at this. God calls his son out of Egypt, noting the Lamb, the blood, and the remembrance. This plague, the tenth plague, is very different from the other plagues because it involves a type. All of Egypt by this time is decimated. God has demonstrated his rule over the whole of creation, that he is God over all the gods of Egypt, that he's the one who directs and rules everything according to his perfect counsel and plan. And he's the covenant God of Israel. He's taken them and separated them already in a certain sense. Now God calls his children to take a lamb. And that distinguishes this plague again from all of the others. The others did not involve a type that was specifically identified to point to something more glorious. Here we have a lamb or a sheep of the goats, a one-year-old male without blemish is to be set aside. And that one is supposed to be taken then and killed. Now, how is it that when this blood would be shed, then the exodus would take place? The people have been waiting for deliverance for years. They've been longing for this day. Moses has been praying for this day. Finally, now the wonder is going to take place. But why is it that God ordains this wonder will not take place without the shedding of the blood of a lamb? Tremendous typology and significance is found in this plague. We could think of a greater wonder, perhaps, that God could perform in order to show his power over Egypt and to rescue his people. But God's purpose is to fix the hope of Israel and the hope of the church throughout all ages on the only possibility of their deliverance, the Lamb of God. The death of the Lamb teaches the Israelites that they in themselves are no different from the Egyptians. They're no better than the Egyptians. They themselves are worthy of death. And the only possibility of their deliverance is through a substitute, one that must be killed on their behalf. That Lamb, as you children know, typical of Jesus. Now God does everything we know for the sake of Jesus. God is a God who has a counsel and a decree that works all things. And according to that counsel and decree, Jesus Christ is at its center, as Colossians 1 points out. And here in the Old Testament already, in Exodus 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, we have here the heart of God's Old Testament Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. We have here in the Old Testament the heart not only of the book of Exodus, we have the heart of God's instruction with regard to the place that Jesus Christ would occupy with regard to the salvation of his church and his people. Not only was the world created by and for Jesus Christ, but Egypt existed for the sake of Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist had displayed this. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. 
Even though he's in the beginning of the New Testament era, repeatedly the Bible calls him the greatest prophet. And what made him the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era? Because he pointed to Jesus in person. And what did he say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. He identified Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types. Jesus is the sacrifice. And Jesus is in Egypt. Now, not in person, but pictured here. We know that Jesus was in the burning bush. We know that Jesus was represented in Moses as Moses is a type of Christ. But now, to a much higher degree, he is present in this Passover lamb. And the significance of that is found throughout the whole of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, Revelation 13, verse 8, And ye all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Talking now about the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And then Hebrews 9, really getting at the significance now of Christ as the antitype, the fulfillment of this Old Testament type. In verses 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God gives the Lamb as the picture of Jesus who was taken at the prime of his life and was offered up as the necessary sacrifice for sin to cover the sins of his people. Now the significance of it is seen then in a number of ways here in the text. The Lamb of God, whose blood is sprinkled now on the houses of the Israelites, alone provides the covering, the propitiation, the covering for God's people. And God is teaching an important truth here. God is the God of Israel alone. God is not the God of Egypt. The lamb that God provides is not a lamb that is for Egypt. It's a lamb for Israel alone. And we have here then in this chapter the truth of limited atonement set forth powerfully. God saves to himself a people whom he has before ordained to love. And he sends Jesus Christ for those people. Who are that people? The congregation who's given the lamb and the blood of the lamb. The Egyptians are left without the lamb. And that's going to be the destruction that God ordains for them. Now, it's true that there was a mixed multitude among Israel. And we realize here that this is typical as well. There were some Egyptians that were delivered with Israel. There were other Israelites, no doubt, that were left behind. The reality is that many of Israel were not elect. 
and that there were some of God's elect found among the Egyptians. But the picture here is that of God separating his beloved church from the depravity and wickedness of the world, rescuing Israel out of the wickedness and depravity of Egypt. And this is a picture. Israel is the son of God. They're the true children of God in Jesus Christ. The Egyptians are a picture of the world. And Psalm 78 tells us what's going on here. Psalm 78 in verses 51 to 53. And smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham, but made his own people to go forth like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely, so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. The point, beloved, is this. As the whole of Scripture teaches, Jesus died not for all, but he died for some. For whom did Jesus die? Jesus died for his own. He laid his life down for those who were his sheep. If Jesus died for everyone, then everyone would go out. There would be none left behind in Egypt. If Jesus died for everyone, then everyone would have got in the ark. There would have been no one left behind during Noah's time. If everyone, then there would be no hell. Every single person in the whole wide world, represented by the Lamb, would be saved. Jesus, we know, is the mediator for all kinds of people, but not for all head for head. He came for the sake of those whom the Father gave him. He's the Lamb of God who laid down his life for the sake of his sheep, his flock, his Israel. Now this shows that there's a great salvation. There is peace in the blood of the Lamb. And we see the wonder of the love of God here toward his Israel. God gives them the gift of a Savior. The Israelites leave Egypt with tremendous wealth, as we read, that the Egyptians were eager to see them go, and they threw their money, and they threw all kinds of things at them. Wonder upon wonder takes place. God will not allow his children to remain in bondage. God will bring them out. And God calls his son now out of the Egypt of bondage of sin and delivers him in the most marvelous, remarkable manner. This victory is the victory of the lamb and the blood of the lamb is her salvation. Jesus then, beloved, is the exodus. Jesus is the reason why we are freed from the dominion of sin and brought into the joy and the wonder of salvation. Jesus and his blood alone can save us from the shame and from the guilt of sin and from the depravity of the devil. The holiness of the child of God is that the child of God now in Jesus Christ begins to keep not just some, but all the commandments of God. And Christ works by his spirit a marvelous salvation. Now what is the point then, beloved? The point is this. There is a joy and a delight in the Lamb of God. We want to glorify God. We want to praise God. We desire that we be holy and we desire that holiness in one another. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction in the pursuit of the things of this life. There's no joy, certainly, in sin. But joy is found in deliverance from the bondage of sin 
And all of that is pictured here in this exodus. This is a type of the church on earth. As the church finds herself in the midst of this world, and as sin abounds, and the bondage of sin is all about, the way is not easy. The way is challenging. But God chooses, God elects, and God leads to the promised land. And God delivers. And God is busy leading His church, His saints, to glory. The way that God leads is the way through the fires of trial, through the afflictions and the struggles of temptation, through the waves and the billows of the wrath of the devil as he wages a war against us. And all those things threaten to overcome us as they threaten to overcome the Israelites. But God is with them. And God brings them through by his mighty hand. As they leave Egypt, a beautiful promise is given in chapter 11, verse 7. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. That's very earthy language. Language that we can understand. Even you children can understand. As God is bringing about this deliverance, not even a dog of Egypt is going to be able to nip them or bite them in order to try to keep them back. God is going to see to it that their deliverance is so marvelous and so complete that not even the animals stand in the way. This is God's work. We think here of the marvelous wonder of Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. And God is now bringing them out by His mighty hand in a way that demonstrates that His love is with them. And nothing, nothing can separate them from the wonder of that love. No one can stand in the way. The beautiful refrain at the conclusion of Romans 8. Who can be against us? Things, people can try to hurt, can try to thwart us, but ultimately no one will be able to overcome. And that's God's point here. No one will stand between you and the exodus because Jehovah, God, the creator of heaven and earth, he is for you and he will preserve and he will keep you. Beloved, the wonder of the 10th commandment is that all of this is to the glory of God. Really, that's the most important point of this, command, as, of this plague, as it was true of all the other plagues. All of them serve the glory of God. God does that now in terms of cutting down the firstborn. Psalm 78 points to that. The strength of Egypt is destroyed. The firstborn represented, especially the firstborn son now, represented the strength of a family. The oldest son was often identified in these countries as the crown prince of the family. He was the one to whom the full inheritance would go. And if not the full, it would be at least over half of everything would go to that oldest son. It was a picture of the strength of the family. And now God cuts that strength out, destroys. God showing his power, his greatness, his majesty. And God declaring again... I alone am God, and none can stand before me. Now, God showed that all along. But now we have in the Lamb of God the glorious truth that the honor of God is at stake. What will men think of the Lamb? What will men think of Jesus Christ who comes as the Lamb of God? Will they despise him 
Will they mock him? Will they crucify him? Or will they give him the honor and the glory that is due unto him? God must be glorified. He must be praised. And we know what happened when Jesus came. The world despised him. The world rejected him. Even the church world wanted nothing to do with him. And we face that question, what do we think of the Lamb of God? What is our confession concerning Jesus Christ who came in order to deliver us through his perfect death and satisfaction? Atonement must be made. And this is sacrifice. This is substitutionary. One must die in the place of those who have sinned. And apart from that substitution, the whole human race is doomed to everlasting destruction. But God sent his own son as that substitute. And Christ loved and gave himself as the sacrifice itself. He was that lamb who offered himself up in our place. So that, beloved, there could be no deliverance, no exodus without the cross. There's no deliverance from the bondage of sin and death without the cross. There's no salvation apart from the blood. And God is teaching that powerfully here to the Israelites. Nothing can compare to the wonder of the blood. That blood which points to the cross. And notice the manner in which they were to put it on the lentil. They were to put a spot above the door and then on either side. If you connect the dots, that's the cross. They were directed to the wonder of the cross. That alone was their hope. And beloved, by faith, we lay hold on that wonder this evening. The wonder of the blood. We look at that secondly, the blood. That blood was sprinkled. Now it's striking here. The lamb was killed, its blood was poured out, but that was not enough. They couldn't just kill the lamb and spill its blood. They had to take that blood now and they had to sprinkle it on the doorpost. We could say without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Without the sprinkling of the blood here, there's no salvation. If they had killed the lamb but didn't put the blood on their doorpost, the angel of death would have come in and destroyed the firstborn sons of that home. Now think about this. Faith is required to lay hold on this wonder. Romans 3 verse 25 says, Whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now that signifies the sprinkling of his blood. And Hebrews 11 makes it emphatic as it connects it with the gift of faith. Through faith, speaking of Moses now, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So something very important is happening here among the Israelites. They have to kill the lamb, and now they have to take the blood that they've collected from that lamb, and they have to spread it on the doorpost. And they must do that as an act of faith. Now they might ask themselves, what possible good could some blood do on a door? It seems ludicrous. There's no reasonable explanation how blood on a door is going to keep the firstborn sons from being killed within that home. But by faith, they laid hold on the command that God gave. 
And by faith they believed that God, who had commanded that, would also bring it to pass. And so what do we have here? We have the Israelites killing the lamb in obedience to God, and then by faith, taking the blood now and putting it on the doorpost, trusting that Jehovah God's word is true, that that blood on the doorpost will be that which will keep the angel of death from entering into their home. Faith produced action. They took the blood and they sprinkled it. If they had not sprinkled that blood on their doorpost, the firstborn, again, in every Jewish home, would also have perished. There may have been some Egyptians that were so influenced by the Jews that they took the blood and they sprinkled it, as we noted. And it may be that God gave that gift of faith to some Egyptian homes so that they, too, were able to exodus with Israel. Some make faith the work of man. It's important for us just briefly to look at that this evening. In other words, Jesus died for all men, but the effectiveness of his blood which was shed is dependent upon man and upon man's believing. The implication is this, that man can hinder or man can affect the effectiveness of the blood by not believing. Jesus died for this man, but now the man doesn't believe and therefore that man goes to hell. Beloved, that's contrary to the testimony of Scripture, including this testimony. Faith is not the work of man. Faith is the work of God. God worked faith in the hearts of these Israelites. And that faith revealed itself by the sprinkling of the blood on their doorpost. James talks about the fact that faith without works, it's dead. You say you have faith, but your faith doesn't demonstrate itself. It doesn't show it in action. That's nothing. But the fruit of the gift of faith is that God's people obey, that God's people believe, so that that faith is grounded in the blood of the cross and Jesus Christ alone. That faith is a gift from God, worked by His Spirit, that moves men and women to glory, not to glory in their faith, but to glory in the Lamb and the wonder of the gift from God. God worked that faith in the hearts of his children here. That they not only laid hold on the significance of the lamb and the blood, but then they also sprinkled that blood on their doorpost. And here's the power of the cross. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, set apart by God's counsel that he might die for us and give us the gift of faith. And today as then, that requirement to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe in in his blood seems foolish. To put our faith in a man who died 2,000 years ago, to put our trust in the fact that he shed his blood, he who was born of a virgin, who was raised from the dead, how can we go to heaven on the basis of the work of a man who hung on a cross? Such is the foolishness of faith. Of itself, But God calls us by his word. And God calls us by his spirit. And he calls us to lay hold on Jesus Christ. Repent from your sins. And lay hold on Jesus Christ and the wonder of his sacrifice. And we hear that call to faith and repentance. And God works the response. 
He works the wonder of grace in the hearts of his children so that they confess. That's why the lamb became Israel's lamb. That's beautiful. Set forth in chapter 12, verse 5, where we read, Your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb. The lamb becomes your lamb. This lamb isn't just someone else's. This is your lamb. Jesus Christ becomes your Savior. Jesus Christ becomes precious to you. You confess that the lamb is mine. And do you love the lamb? And do you know the wonder that his blood was shed for your protection and for your salvation? His blood was shed so that you might have the gift of faith. We look away, beloved, from the despair of self and from the sinfulness of our natures and we look to Christ. And we confess, I am dirty, I am polluted, I am corrupt. The only possibility of salvation is through the blood of the Lamb. And that blood, we read in verse 13, shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Beloved, understand the wonder of that. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Jesus is not looking at your house. Jesus is not looking at you to see how faithful you've been as a husband, as a wife, as a young person. Jesus is not looking into our houses to see, are you worthy? Have you done enough to make yourself worthy? His judgment concerning your and my salvation is not on the basis of anything of self. When I look at the blood, what a wonder of grace. He's not looking at me. He's not examining me to see whether I'm worthy or not. There's so much that he could be looking at in my life and in your life. And we stand before him with shame. Our heads hung. But what does he look at? He looks at the blood. And because he sees the blood, he passes by. He looks on Jesus Christ. He sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ on your and my behalf. He sees his perfect sacrifice. He's a God who imputes our sins upon Christ and takes the righteousness of Christ now and imputes it on us. What a great love. That's the marvel of the love of God for you and for me. And just as an aside, beloved, this was the testimony of our brother Marv. Anyone who visited him would have heard this testimony. How great the love of God was for me, a sinner. And that God did not look at me. God was not focused on me. God was focused on Christ and how I can be thankful for the wonder of that salvation that is in him alone. Beloved, what a glorious testimony and what a wondrous love. And there's a remembrance then that continues as Israel is commanded now to remember this. There's ultimately no substantial difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians. That remembrance, first of all, we are sinners. We are undeserving. Both are idolaters. Both have given themselves over to gross sins. The guilt of Israel here is on the foreground. Israel needed the blood. Without the covering of blood, Israel would have perished. 
And we acknowledge the same personally. Without the covering of the blood of Jesus, we would be doomed. We would perish. Was Israel a better people than the Egyptians? Had they made themselves more worthy than the Egyptians? Absolutely not. Israel is God's by virtue of God setting his love upon them. God naming them. God choosing them. God setting them apart. And God providing the wonder of the blood of the Lamb alone. Ezekiel 16, this morning we looked at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 16 also lays out a long litany of all the sins of Israel, making it clear that Israel was no better than the pagans. Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters whom thou hast borne unto me, and these thou hast sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter, that thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them? And in all thine abominations and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare, and wast polluted in thy blood. And it came to pass, after all thy wickedness, woe, woe unto thee. And God continues in that chapter to outline all the idolatry, all the fornication. They were Egyptians in themselves. And beloved, that's you and me. In pride, we can be tempted to think, I'm special. Look at what I've done. Look at what my family's responsible for. We think that we're not pagans like the wicked. We're more deserving of them. We appeal to all the good that we've accomplished, the things that we've done. Beloved, there was nothing special about the Israelites. There's nothing special about you and me, of ourselves. We are sinners, and we deserve judgment. And if we're to be saved, it's only by God's grace, and it's only by a wonder of God's love and mercy. And the more we see our depravity, and the more we confess our own unworthiness, the more fully we see the marvelous mercy and the grace of God. Know our sins. Remember your sins. But another remembrance, the mercy of Jehovah God. This is all about mercy. It's all about God's love. And beloved, we stand in awe of that love, that love that worked salvation for us. For me, who wants to keep going back to my sins again and again and again, God tells me what I'm supposed to do, and what do I do? I keep going back and I do what I want to do. That old man of flesh is just concerned about myself, about my own pleasures, my own lusts, getting what I want. And how do we reason? Nobody's looking. Nobody's going to know. I'm just going to engage in this little pleasure. I can get by with it. And so we walk down the paths of sin. We walk down the way that leads to destruction. And God in love comes to us and testifies. There is no salvation apart from the shedding of blood. And so great is the love of God that he gives us his own son as the Lamb of God. The most important truth that Israel had to learn was look to the Lamb. This was the truth they had to teach their children. When the children would say, verse 26, unto you, what mean ye by this service? They were to teach the children, this is the Lord's service. And the Lord is teaching us to look to the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is the only possibility of salvation. The innocent one had to die in your place. God had to provide a substitute. There was no other way. Hebrews 9, verse 22, without shedding of blood is no remission. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs, that could not accomplish it. 
But Christ, the Passover lamb, made the sacrifice. And we are redeemed by his precious blood. And we stand in awe of the wonder of that love. He didn't look at me. He looked at the blood and he passed by. Salvation is all of grace, beloved. It's all of mercy. And God works in us the gift of faith then that we walk by faith. There's no rational connection again between the spreading the blood on the doorposts and being saved. But God worked faith to believe his word. They maybe didn't understand. They couldn't have fathomed it all. But they laid hold on the word of God and they believed in God. Today, beloved, we lay hold on God by a true and living faith. And we see in this history that the antitype far exceeds the types. There are a number of types here. Redemption from Egypt, from Pharaoh, from temporary judgment. That can't even begin to compare to the wonder of the redemption from the curse of the law, the tyranny of sin and the devil. The contrast between here, the victims, the lamb, and Jesus Christ as the lamb of God. The contrast between the power of the blood, that blood that had to be put on the doorpost but had to be continually shed for the remission and Christ's precious blood that has eternal benefit and the specific blessedness. Israel receives an earthly Canaan, an earthly deliverance, whereas God gives in Christ everlasting pardon. He gives to us the wonder of a new heaven and a new earth and the fullness of eternal bliss. By faith, we lay hold upon that wonder by faith. How utterly foolish sounding that God sent a lamb to die in our place. Salvation through a man who hung on a cross. God works faith, beloved, by which we lay hold upon Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we cling to him. And flowing out of that faith is a life of obedience, a life of joy, a life of happiness, a life of thankfulness, training up the children that God has given, teaching them to look to the Lamb, a life of thankfulness to God, recalling repeatedly what God has done for me and what great things he's done, a life of testimony, witnessing to those around me concerning the wonder of God's love, loving what he loves, hating what he hates and praising him with joy and with thankfulness. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy love and for thy mercy, for the wonder of the cross, the depths of love that we cannot begin to fathom, which to all eternity will amaze us and cause, Lord, that we might go forth by faith and that we might walk humbly in thankfulness before thee. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 241. The mercies and faithfulness of God. 